If you're able, would you remain standing for our New Testament reading this morning, picking back up in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 through 24. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, when Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Truly, it is light and life, and we need it. Lord, may we in this text see you, not judging you by what our own hearts want or what we think we want or what we want to get from you, but let us encounter you. Lord, this is only possible if the wind of your spirit blows. Lord, enlightening our eyes and hearts to the 
the truths that are here. Help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Top nine beauty trends of 2022, according to Google. Bleached brows. Powerful graphic eyes. I have no idea what that means. Redefined masculinity. Bold, glossy lips. Glittering skin. Natural, middle parted hair. I remember that in the 80s. Microbiome clean beauty. I have no idea. Skincare TikTok beauty trend. No idea. Nail art. I have some suspicions on that one. The point is, we are obsessed. Americans are obsessed, along with much of the world that's not just strictly American with beauty, with outward appearance. Obsessed with image. We obsess over clothing, fashion trends. We spend billions and billions of dollars improving our faces and our bodies. Looks and fads come in and go out just as fast. And it's interesting, God's word is not unaware of this trend. This is the trajectory often of the human heart. Throughout scripture, we read various critiques that stress outward appearance isn't all there is. We, we just heard one in Samuel. God sending his prophet to go anoint the new king. He goes, and there are a bunch of tall, tan, and terrific sons of Jesse. Man, they look good. And it should be one of them. Clearly, it should be the, the, the firstborn, Eliab. That's the dude. God says, nope, he's not my guy. And they go all the way down through this lineup, and David wasn't even there. He was in a field, and... and and the point of the text is clear. God says it himself. I don't see like you see. Don't just look on the outward appearance. Look on the heart. In our text today, we learn this truth even more pointedly when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. The true king. You see, the people certainly expect a king, but they don't expect a king like Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us that he has no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Further, it goes on about the same king, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. A pierced king, a crushed king, a chastised and wounded king, a king who would become, become a curse, being hung on a tree. Appearances can be very deceiving. From the beginning, John has wanted us to truly see Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That's kind of the whole point of John's gospel. He wants us 
all these ages later to see the glory of God in Christ with eyes of faith. And yet time and time again in John, we see this this people not seeing the glory of God, not believing him, but just looking on the outward appearance and judging Jesus based on that. Not a Jesus that we want, not a Jesus after our image, but who he really is. To look on Jesus, crucified, dead and buried, laid in a tomb, and gloriously raised. The outward appearance looks terrible. It looks awful, bloody, a sacrifice. John the Baptist himself announced when Jesus came out publicly, here he is. What did he say of Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is coming as a sacrifice. Glory of shame is actually life giving to a world that values outward appearances this gospel comes along and reminds us not to look at Jesus based on outward appearances not to judge him wrongly so we'll see the judgment of his brothers the judgment of the crowd and then Jesus's correction first his brothers notice the beginning, the, the scene is being set. Jesus is going about in Galilee. He would not go to Judea because they're hunting him. They want to kill him. We're also told that the feast of the feast of booths was at hand. You remember the last time he told us about Jesus being in Judea? Things did not go well. We had the third sign, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And here Jesus was accused of being a Sabbath breaker. This man had had lain there for a long, long time. And Jesus comes and says, get up, take your mat and walk. Being so enraged that he he would do something like this on the Sabbath, that's where their hearts first turned to want to kill Jesus. Further, verse 2 gives us another significant detail that's going to dominate the landscape of all of chapter 7 and chapter 8. It's the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's hard to express exactly um, all the, the nuances of the feast, but I'll say a few things. This was a celebration. It was a feast of ingathering of the harvest, not of barley, but of dates and olives. This would have been a huge, huge party. You see, one of the significant features of the Feast of Booths is they were to remember their their own wilderness wanderings where they dwelled in tents and God provided for them. So once a year, they were supposed to all gather together and they built little tents. Even if you had a house in Jerusalem, you would build a tent on the top of your house. I can imagine kids would have utterly loved this feast. Could you imagine the entire city of Shreveport, Bossier having a camp out all at the same time? 
That's what's going on here. It is a huge party. It is a massive remembering of God. It is a huge celebration for the people of God, remembering what God has done, the way that he had led him. Uh, just imagine like Christmas and New Year's and all that rolled into one, all one week, packed a feast and everybody's together, everybody's intense. Mom, dad with kids, it's great. That's this feast. Verses three and four. We hear the brothers of Jesus interacting with him about going to the feast. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. We know from this account and many others that Jesus had brothers, likely sisters, Whenever I think about that, I wonder what in the world that must have been like. What was it like to be a sibling of Jesus? He's perfect in every possible way and had been from conception. What is that like? Here we see those brothers encouraging him to go to Judea, go to Jerusalem. That's going to be the center of the party. That's where this feast is going down. And Jesus, you need to be there. You need to show all these great things that you've been doing to the world. Why keep them secret? Why hold back? Go show yourself. Make an appearance. Go wow the crowds publicly. Verse 5 is very interesting. Look at it again. Not even his brothers believed in him. They accepted all these outward signs. Think of the things that they had already seen. No doubt they were at the wedding at Cana. No doubt they had heard about the miracles of Jesus performed in the region of Galilee. And yet verse 5 says, they do not believe in him. What a statement. It runs contrary to the, the whole purpose of the letter of John even being written. It's written so that we may believe and his brothers see all these things that he's doing and they do not believe in him. What a striking reality. Remember John's words to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless the wind of the Spirit blows on us, brothers, sisters, our eyes will not be open to the truth. Here's the thing with appearances with his brothers. You can be enamored with the power of Christ and not believe in him. You can be his brother and not believe in him. You can love the things that he says and not believe in him. You can see incredible outward signs and still not believe in him. So what excites you about Jesus? What draws you to him? or to the gathered body like this, to even hear the gospel week in and week out. What, what does that for you? Jesus' brothers craved this superficial appearance of glory. 
They craved the outward signs. They craved the appearance of glory. They, they neglect believing in Christ for who he is. What are some of the implications of this? I thought about family members who, who don't believe. I bet every one of us in this room can rattle off in our head close family and friends that we have that do not believe. Sometimes we just want to make them see and hear, but we can't. Sometimes we think we can argue them into the kingdom, but guess what? That doesn't work either. Listen to this quote by J.C. Ryle about this text. Quote, believers often blame themselves because their families remain worldly and unbelieving. But let them look at the verse before us. In our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no fault either in temper, word, or deed. Yet even Christ's own brothers did not believe in him. End quote. Take heart. Take heart. You cannot save others. You can proclaim Christ to them and you can pray. You cannot save them. There are more applications. You can grow up around profound religious teachers, preachers, evangelists. You can go to all the right churches. You can be exposed to some of the best theology this world has to offer and still not believe in Christ. How would Jesus respond to his brothers? He gives a familiar argument in 7 and 8. My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me that I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. The brothers are like, hey, go get this big flashy entrance, big bang and celebration. And Jesus says two things. My time has not yet come. We've seen this term time or another term hour already several times in John. It's like a drumbeat that he hits again and again and again. It's not my hour. It's not my time. That is reserved for one moment that's coming where he would be laid low on a cross. It's not his time. And he's not going to this festival. What does this mean? We've seen, again, already this this reality. But we're also going to see him go to the feast in the middle. He's not going at the beginning in glory. He's, He's coming anonymously later. It's because he knows this. He knows that he will, his his moment, his hour will come at a feast of the Jews, but it's not going to be this celebration. It's not going to be the Feast of Booths. His glory is going to be revealed at Passover, where he, the very Lamb of God, would lay down his life. Not while the whole city is partying, but he will be on trial stripped, taken from the city as the Passover lamb. 
Jesus takes this opportunity of misunderstanding of his brothers to point to his greater glory. It's not my time yet. The greater glory isn't this party, isn't this celebration. Although he is the purpose of this feast, he says it's not yet. You see, his brothers, kind of like us, I suspect they're kind of like us. They love a theology of glory. Man, I can get behind that. Jesus is such a great leader. And look at this trick that he can do. It's glorious. Have you ever seen anybody do anything like that? That's crazy. We want a theology of glory. And time and time again, what John gives us is a theology of suffering. He says, that is glorious. These things that you want in outward appearances and people, that's not where it's at. If you want to see the glory of God, look at Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. There you will see glory. So do we want a theology of glory without a theology of suffering? You see, those two exist together. So that's the judgment of the brothers. And now what about the the judgment of the crowd in Judea? The continuation of viewing with outer appearances. The Jews were looking for him, verse 11, at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Jesus goes up to the feast, but he does so without fanfare. This is not his public moment. John seems to want us to notice detail going back to chapter 5. Jesus can get lost in a crowd. I love that detail. Time and time again we see it. Sometimes we want to frame Jesus as this outstanding-looking person, maybe having a halo. There's something about him, and John is having none of it. That's not his kind of glory. In quick succession, we're, we're given insight into the hearts of the people. One, we're told they're muttering about Jesus. Don Carson sees in this search for Jesus and muttering as a threat. The people are hostile to him. They view Jesus as a threat to their way of life, and he utterly is, but not in ways that they would expect. Ultimately, they get Jesus wrong because they refuse to believe that Jesus is their God. They will not believe it. They refuse his claims concerning his relationship to the Father. Then we're told some of them said he's a good man. So they mutter about him. They say he's a good man. Jesus is good. Leave him alone. Have you ever heard someone say this about Jesus? Several in history have made this exact mistake. They look at the life of Jesus Maybe they read the Gospels. Maybe they tell you they read the Bible cover to cover and they come away being like, yeah, Jesus was a good man. Is that enough? 
He certainly is a good man, but the text doesn't let us off the hook. He is way more than that. That's why in the prologue, he backs out to show us exactly how big Jesus is. And John takes pains again and again to show us signs. We're not meant to look at Jesus and just walk away saying he's a good man. Others in the crowd think of Jesus as a liar and a trickster. He is leading the people astray, they say. Jesus is a charlatan. And after the resurrection, this would become the the standing view, the standing line of reasoning among the Pharisees. Everybody in this chapter so far is misjudging Jesus. They're looking on the outward appearance and saying, I got him, I understand him, and they're all wrong. So many differing views on Jesus, how are we to resolve the tension? John beautifully is going to let Jesus himself do that very thing. He offers the correction. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. He knows there's tons of misunderstanding. The Jews, therefore, marveled and saying, how is it that this man, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He has not gone to university. He didn't even finish high school. He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Again, Jerusalem would be swollen. This feast was extremely popular. People have come for the fun, the light, the ritual. We'll see water poured over the altar, all pointing to Jesus himself, and he's actually going to tell us those things himself. They hear Jesus teaching, and they wonder where he gets it from. They have the gift of ages right in front of them, and instead of opening this gift of ages, they admire the wrapping paper. Infinite value, infinite worth, God in flesh in front of them teaching in the temple, and they want to talk about his credentials. Again, utter misunderstanding about the person of Christ. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. This is truly astonishing. It's astonishing what Jesus is saying here. In the face of being utterly misunderstood, Jesus puts himself in the position of a prophet. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And he's already told us about that relationship. He is the only begotten son of God. His teaching is authoritative. He's saying, I am teaching what God teaches. Then he says that true knowledge of himself flows from the heart to the head and not the other way around. This is vital for us to catch. To get who Jesus truly is goes from the heart to the head, not the other way around. Knowledge flows from the will, desire, affection. Anyone who has ever loved anything or anyone knows the reality of this. You cannot, intellectual, in, in some intellectual sense, force yourself 
to love. That starts in the will, the desire of a person. Love flows from volition, will, desire, then into words, actions, beliefs. Proverbs teaches this lesson. Kids, you you should probably know this verse if you don't. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do I mean that the content of the gospel is like Disney, just follow your heart and be whatever you want to be? Absolutely not. John isn't saying that either. We've been given teaching by Jesus already. We've heard it. We've been given five incredible signs performed by Jesus. The issue is not content. Jesus is saying the issue with the people listening to him is not content. It's their heart. It's their will. It's what they want. They don't want this Jesus. They want another Jesus. The issue with people who misunderstand Jesus is not a just they can't hear. It's a problem of their heart. Like moths to a flame, they're being drawn to Jesus, but a Jesus of their own making. Hey, we like a Jesus who does good tricks. We don't much like a Jesus who would look at us and call us out on our wickedness and say we need him. We don't want that Jesus. We want a good Jesus, a nice Jesus, a Jesus who will give us what we want, especially when things are hard. But we don't want a Jesus who would say, bow the knee to me. I am the sovereign of the universe. We don't don't like that Jesus as much. In our upbringing, In our education, we're taught and led in the direction of empirical data. If we can get enough facts, if we know enough good content, if we can have the right habits, our hearts will be good and our actions will be good and will be good. That is not the gospel way. The gospel is an anti-intellectual, but it doesn't start there. Jesus is seeding this in the will. He says, the reason you're not rightly seeing me is your will is off. You can't have enough good content to fix your heart. You, You can't ever read enough good theology to fix your soul. Without a change at the level of the heart, you will never, ever, ever rightly see Jesus. Again, unless God changes us, we will not change. The invitation to us again and again in John's gospel is to see beyond what our eyes see. Look beyond the outward appearance. Look beyond the son of Mary at a wedding of a friend who has these massive jars filled up and then gives them to the head waiter and suddenly they're incredible wine. Look beyond the grief of a sick 
dad daring to ask Jesus to heal his son. We're invited to see beyond the dusty traveler who had to go through Samaria and was thirsty. We're invited by John to see beyond the small poultry amount of five loaves and two fish. We're invited to see beyond the fact that the boat was gone and Jesus Jesus was not on it, and yet somehow he made it to the other side. See beyond the reality that a lame man got up and walked with his mat. See beyond the fact that it was on the Sabbath. All of this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying the issue for you guys is not facts. That's not your problem. Your will is bent against me. That's the problem. Your heart is far from me. That's your problem. Listen to his conclusion in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. This whole text really is about glory. The glory of God rather than the exaltation of man is the true measure. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying you want to see glory, but you want to see it on your terms. And Jesus is having none of it. He knows that his glory is something altogether different than what they want to see, what they want him to be. What about our own hearts? Are we already convinced in one way or another about Jesus based on outward appearances? One commentator puts it like this, quote, God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God is the object we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like of him. The faith commitment envisioned here is properly basic and renders impossible any attitude that sets us up as judges of God's ways, end quote. We are not his judge. Just as he told Nicodemus, now he tells the questioning crowd, you will never figure me out by your own examination. Not going to happen. Where will the master teacher go to illustrate his point? He gives two points that seals the deal. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? He goes straight to the superhero of the Jews and he says, you have the content that you need. The issue is not content. You have the law itself and yet none of you keep it. He's saying they're trying to to kill him, accusing him of having a demon and all these other things and yet they're they're not obeying the law. He's, He's saying you're not doing what you say you believe. And the second one, he gets more personal. Jesus answered them, I did one work, 
and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Again, he's talking about that issue back in chapter 5. This is utterly, again, utterly astonishing because he's saying, you do this thing again and again and again and you accuse me. And as far as they know, he's done one thing where he, and he's not violating the Sabbath, but he told a man on the Sabbath to get up, take his mat and go. Jesus is utterly incredulous with them. Here's the connection between head and heart. Those who are seeking to kill Jesus are more concerned with ex externals. They're way more concerned with externals than anything to do with the love of God or the glory of God. Of course they circumcise on the Sabbath. Of course they do that. Jesus did one thing on the Sabbath, not a violation, and they seek to kill him. He he's pointing out the huge disconnect between what they know and what they believe to be true about him. Here's the good news about the gospel for us. The gospel frees us from stuff like that. The gospel sets us free and we can be honest about who we are, the depth of our sin, the great love of God expressed to us in the person of Christ. The same gospel invites us to look beyond the shame of the cross to see the glory of God found there. He's saying it's not going to go down this way of celebration. His glory is coming through shame. We're invited to look at the cross and there see the very wisdom of God displayed for sinners. Will we accept that gospel? Or will we continue demanding a Jesus that fits nicely in our life? The broken body, shed blood of Christ leading to eternal life. God glorying in triumph over sin, death, hell, and the grave. It's not an issue of appearances. Stop looking for him in appearances. Stop looking for Jesus to conform to your image. Let's conform our hearts by his Holy Spirit instead to Jesus. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us for all the ways that we demand a Jesus to fit the outward appearances that we want. Remind us that faith is located in our heart. Lord, let us take all this content and simply receive, believe your gospel. And may we be freed up in that. Not distorted, some distorted image of you but by your spirit, a right of you of glory. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.